May I speak to you in the name of the loving God. Amen. Before we get into the heart of the matter, I just want to draw your attention briefly to our beloved Lafarge painting of the Ascension, of Jesus rising into the air, feet dangling over the disciples. He looks very regal and clean and perfect, right? And now I also want to bring into your mind's eye, because I'm sure many of you have seen this painting, and if not, please Google it later, Salvador Dali's painting of the Ascension. It's the one from the perspective of the disciples on the ground, as if we too were those disciples, because we actually are those disciples, craning our necks, seeing only the bottoms of Jesus's dirty feet. Just please keep those dirty feet in your mind's eye, if you would be so kind. When I was studying the gospel passage today, I started thinking about literary trails of breadcrumbs how authors structure stories to guide the reader in a particular direction. In this case, that direction includes the dirty feet of the Son of God. (laughs) So looking at the passage about Thomas, or doubting Thomas, as we often refer to him, I wanted to see where and how this story, which is unique to John, is situated in the larger context of his gospel. Just before this passage, Mary Magdalene has gone to the tomb and found it empty. Jesus has appeared to her and she has mistaken him for the gardener. It is not until after Jesus has called her by name that she recognizes him. So Jesus is right in front of her, and she doesn't recognize him until he speaks. And once she does, Jesus asks her to stop holding on to him because clearly she has touched him. So Mary, seeing her beloved friend, instinctively feels the need to have physical contact. A few lines later, when Jesus appears to the other disciples, as we heard today, he speaks to them and shows them his hands and his side in order that they might recognize him. They don't know it's him until they see the marks of the crucifixion. I find it hard to imagine that they too did not gather around him and touch him. And Jesus then breathes on them. So again, as with Mary, John affirms that the visual and verbal recognition is followed by an actual form of physical contact. Then finally, we hear the story of Thomas. Unless I see the marks of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the marks of nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. What is Thomas asking for? What did Mary 
instinctively need? What have the other disciples experienced? Exactly what Thomas is requesting. They all want to touch and feel. And how does Jesus respond? He gives them what they ask for. So John offers us three stories, all of which affirm the tactile, comforting, wonderful, and necessary joy of being in the flesh. Why? Why such a strong emphasis on touch? I think it's because in our limited human experience, what we touch often feels the most real to us. We actually assert that insight here and now in the 21st century every time we say the words, trust science. Because what is scientific research if not careful engagement with and measuring of the physical world in some extended and precisely mediated form of touch. What makes science believable is that it's tactile and tangible and measurable. So three stories in a row that tell us about our need to touch and to taste, to see and hear, and how those things are vital to us. They're important signs of who we are, markers of how we navigate this world. Our five senses are how we learn to know and to understand. So Jesus' loving interactions with the disciples affirm and validate the significance of those experiences. Three stories in which every one of the people we're hearing about gets to have physical contact with Jesus. By the time we tr follow this trail of breadcrumbs to Thomas, John has spelled it out so clearly that he's almost bashing us on the head with this insight. He wants to make sure we really hear him when he tells us that the flesh matters. Our humanity matters. Incarnation matters. How do we know this? Because the risen Christ was not a ghost. Jesus was made flesh, and he rose again as flesh. What greater affirmation of the sanctity, of the very goodness of all of creation could there be? Jesus was fully human, and I'm guessing that God did not choose to become human on a whim. God did so because this earthly life matters. The story of Thomas is telling us that our experiences here are consequential, so consequential that God chose to share them. God clearly values creation very much indeed. But here's another key thing about the story. 
And any of you who are at evening prayer on Wednesday, forgive me because it's a repeat. It's really important to remember that the resurrected Jesus' flesh was not perfect. The risen Christ did not look like a muscle-bound superhero in a Marvel comic movie. He showed them his wounds, the piercing in his side, the holes in his hands, and his still dirty feet. That's why I wanted you to look at our Lafarge and to think about Salvador Dali. Because out of the two of them, and no offense to Lafarge, it is Dali who is emphasizing that point. The resurrected Christ retained human imperfections. So why does that matter to us that his flesh is still broken? Is it just a smoking gun kind of piece of evidence so the storyteller can assure us that it really was Jesus? It was so much more than that. It matters to us because Christ is telling us that we too are beloved and known and seen not when we are perfect because we are never perfect, but just as we are, including our brokenness. John shows us that Christ's resurrection is not the return to some kind of mythical, physical perfection that existed before the crucifixion. Instead, it's a return that acknowledges the reality of what Jesus endured as a human, all of that reality. We may speak of Christ's return as the resurrection, all caps, but it was not the only resurrection. We too witness resurrections every day, both within ourselves, but also in others and in nature and in communities and in the world at large. We too, as writer Nora Smith says, are hourly and daily practicing resurrection in our lives, continuing to grow and to change and to learn, finding ways to incorporate the very wounds we carry and have endured into the healing that each of us uniquely can bring to the world. In this story, John acknowledges that Jesus had those scars, the same scars on our flesh and on our hearts, the ones that go into making us who we are. Don't ignore them, John is telling us. Don't discount them. They too are precious to God. Every time we use them to bring healing to someone else is yet another resurrection. So please, never stop tending to them with love and with kindness. Did you ever notice that when we affirm the sacredness of the flesh, every time we say one of the creeds, both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. 
We say we believe in the resurrection of the body and we look for the resurrection of the dead. Those resurrections are happening here and now every day. These creedal statements are not only about what happens when we die. They're also a celebration of this life here and now. So isn't it fascinating that it is in that moment of both creeds that we use our bodies, <laughs> our flesh, to make the sign of the cross on ourselves? When we're doing so, we are saying this flesh, this body, scars and wounds and all, this body with which I am making this sign, this body matters. And just to be sure that we internalize the ongoing and very present nature of resurrection, toward the end of the passage, John pivots and he speaks to us directly. Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. You might be saying, well, doesn't that just negate everything she just said? No. John is addressing the generation upon generations of Christians who were not present to have that physical, touching, seeing, hearing, hearing experience of the risen Christ. Given that John's gospel was probably written around 90 CE, those who wrote it were just like us. They too probably had not had that physical contact, but they could have spoken with those who had, and they wanted to keep the tender physicality of those experiences alive. These stories of the corporeal reality of the wounded risen Christ were vitally important for those early Christians. They wanted to pass on the immediacy of those experiences so that those experiences would remain alive too. And so that we would connect them directly to our experiences today in our flesh. When we Christians tell these stories, we're reminding ourselves to value creation as much as the creator does. That Jesus came back in the flesh, not as a ghost. That the resurrection doesn't mean that the created world is no longer valid or important. And the resurrection doesn't mean that our only focus now should be on what happens after we die. On the contrary, our Christian calling asks us to be awake to the material world as well as the spiritual to recognize that the suffering and pain of other people, of animals, of the environment, of the earth herself, is not something we can turn our eyes away from with the cheap excuse that, eh, they'll get their reward in the next life. It doesn't matter what I do to them this time. It reminds us that we need to focus on what is vital and good here and now. It reminds us to think about what we can do now in this life to make it better for everyone and everything. 
So every time we pray the creed and we cross ourselves at the words, the resurrection of the dead, remember we are affirming the sacredness of this flesh. We are preaching with and through our bodies that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. We are affirming that we are indeed the body of Christ here and now. Let us pray. O God, who by the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light, grant that we, being raised with Christ, may know the strength of Christ's presence and rejoice in Christ's eternal glory, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen.